Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Turn to Acts chapter 1. We have been dealing with, here in 2023, we've been dealing with things that you should know. Usually I preach through a book of the Bible. That is our standard practice. But for 2023, we have been focusing on some key things. And right now we are focusing on the promise of the Holy Spirit. As you might be able to discern, we are concentrating our attention on some things, especially with things that are going on that are devastating the church, and that will no doubt continue to increase because it is the results of what we have sown. It is the consequences of our sin and our turning away from the Lord. But that does not mean that the church should be powerless. It does not mean that the blood of Christ has lost its power. It does not mean that Jesus Christ does not save. It does not mean that he no longer has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. What it means is that we are reaping some consequences, which actually proves that he retains all power and authority on earth as it is in heaven. But we see Christianity being deconstructed all around us. And it used to be known as Western civilization, used to be known as Western Christendom. We can no longer say that that is the case. It's now Western paganism. And there's a whole host of reasons why we're here at this stage. But I do know what the answer is, because the answer is the same thing, the same answer that was true for the Christians in the first century, and that is still true for us today. We need the power of the Holy Spirit upon us once again. Now, I know we, we, ha- we didn't realize what was going on in the church and Western civilization. We were kind of like Samson, right? The Western church had this power of God upon it, and it established Western civilization built upon the truths of Scripture and upon the church. And, of course, we kind of became confident in ourselves, and we became corrupt and immoral, just like Samson. And there came a point in time, even though Samson had this miraculous strength and was defeating all the enemies of Israel, there came a time when, at this time, Delilah says, 
the Philistines be upon you. And the Bible says this, that he got up and he shook himself just like before. And he did not realize that the power of God had gone from him. That's us. What we need is the power of God on the church again today. And so that's why we've been looking in Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1 and 2. So we're in verse number 15, and this is a very difficult portion of scripture to preach, uh, but we're going to attempt it. But uh, hopefully it means that we can keep it relatively short and to the point. In verse number 15, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in his ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So the field is called, in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us, All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. In Acts chapter 1, we find ourselves at the starting point of the Holy Spirit's promise and the great commission given by Jesus to his disciples Reflecting on Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry, we connect the significance of the promise of the Holy Spirit to the mission of spreading the gospel. This connection becomes more evident as Jesus reiterates the Great Commission at his ascension, uh, emphasizing the inseparable nature of the promise of the Holy Spirit and the Great Commission. Upon Jesus' ascension, he commanded the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This instruction raised questions among the disciples, and they asked if this was the time for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus responded by redirecting their focus from the timing of events to the empowerment that they would receive from and through the Holy Spirit. He assured them that the Holy Spirit would grant them power to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. 
we considered the profound implications of this promise for the apostles, the early church, and also the church universal throughout history, emphasizing and encompassing both Jews and Gentiles. In the midst of the disciples, awe and amazement at Jesus' ascension, the angels appeared and they questioned their purpose in standing there and gazing up into heaven. Something that we need to be asked. <laughs> Why are we standing here gazing into heaven? And so while they were not to remain idle, they received the assurance that Jesus would return in the same manner. And following Jesus' instructions, the apostles obediently returned to Jerusalem, gathered in unity and prayer in the upper room. Their unity and prayer were not mere acts of togetherness, but we will see that they also engaged actively in the governance, ministry, and work of the church even during that waiting period. They were not inactive. In Acts chapter 1, Verses 15 through 26, our passage here this morning, we encounter a powerful example of the early church's active engagement in God's work while they were eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of the promises. This passage imparts valuable lessons to us on the significance of faithful service and stewardship during seasons of anticipation and uncertainty. After Jesus' ascension, the disciples, joined by other believers, gathered in Jerusalem. And it was during this time that Peter stood up among them and addressed the group, recognizing the need to fill the vacancy left by Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus. Peter understood the importance of upholding the integrity and completeness of the apostolic ministry prompting him to propose the selection of a new apostle to take Judas's place. From this passage, we learn the importance of being proactive and responsible in our service to God while awaiting the fulfillment of his promises. The disciples did not passively wait, but they saw the waiting period as an opportunity to address needs and take practical steps to ensure the continuity of and the continuity of the entrusted work. So what did they do? They gathered together in unity, prayer, and labor. Ministry work. And so in this process here in our passage of seeking a replacement for Judas, we see that there are several things that happened and that they followed in relation to this activity. And so I'm only going to point out some of these things because we only have one thing that we want to highlight here this morning. So we see, first of all, the preaching of the word. Peter stands up among the disciples there in verses 15 and 17. He takes a prominent role among the disciples here in their assembly, in their gathering, And he proclaims the word of God. He stands up, first of all, signifying his readiness to address the assembly and to be engaged in the activity that is necessary 
for the advancement of the church. And we also see that while his leadership is showcased, we also see that their unity is showcased in the exercise of his leadership in their following. So Peter addresses the disciples. He brings to their attention the fulfillment of Scripture concerning Judas Iscariot. Now, there are some things we need to understand in relation to some prophetic aspects of Scripture. They were taking the Word of God and making proper discernment and application. And so he recognizes that the betrayal by Judas and his subsequent demise were not unexpected or outside the divine plan. They were able to read and understand this through the illumination of Scripture. By referencing the Psalms, Peter affirms that even in the midst of such betrayal, God's promises were still being carried out by the word of God. And so he highlights Judas's involvement in Jesus' arrest and ministry, and he gives some context as, he, as they look to the word. He gives context to the events surrounding their situations. And so they rec- he, he brings to light this recognition of Judas's role in Jesus's ministry and also upon the importance of continuing this ministry even in Judas's failure. So what we see here is the word of God being sought, being proclaimed, and then we see the application of the word in verses 18 through 20. Following the acknowledgement of Judas's betrayal, Peter proceeds to describe the fate that befell Jesus, or Judas, and he recounts how Judas acquired the field of blood with the money he received for betraying Jesus. We also see that this underscores the consequences of Judas's actions and the tragic outcome of his unfaithfulness. And so the book of Psalms is being quoted, specifically Psalm 69 and 25 and Psalm 109 and verse 8. And these verses speak, these passages speak of the desolation and abandonment of those who were unfaithful. And it's specifically being applied here to the abandonment of Judas's dwelling place, his abandonment because of his unfaithfulness. And so then they make more application in light of Judas's tragic end. They also make application in understanding that, that Judas's role needs to be filled. And then we see not only the word being preached or the preaching of the word, not only do we see the application of the word in a context but we also see the governance of the word and so they start laying out the criteria for selecting a new apostle who would take judas's place 
It's emphasized here the necessity of choosing someone who has been a witness of Jesus' ministry from his baptism to his ascension. Someone who would have first-hand knowledge and experience of Jesus' teachings, miracles, and resurrection. Someone who had been with Jesus. So it's a requirement here of being a witness of Jesus' ministry and resurrection to fulfill this apostolic office. And so they are following certain criteria that they understand according to the governance of the word. And then in verses 23 through 26, we see the work of the word. There's two candidates who are proposed, Joseph and Matthias. And so after they establish this criteria for selection, then they propose two candidates who meet the requirements. And they put these men forth to fill the vacancy among the apostles. And so what they are doing is they're ensuring that suitable uh, individuals are considered for this important office. And then they pray. They seek the Lord's guidance. All kinds of checks and balances here going on. Balances coming from the word coming from discernment and wisdom, and also uh, seeking to be illuminated by God to know his will. So they demonstrate their dependence upon God and for their desire for his will to be done, even in the selection process. And the Bible says that they are in one accord. My understanding by being in one accord and in unity, is that Joseph didn't get upset and leave. You know, the one that was not chosen? No, they were in one accord, the Bible says. They were committed to the word. They were committed to the church and to each other. And their actions demonstrate this. Now what we find here at the end of this story is... Casting lots, and I've heard a lot of people try to comment on all these things and uh, bring in all kinds of craziness and confusion. So let me just say this without getting off into the mud and the weeds, is that whatever is going on here with the casting of lots, it symbolized the disciples' commitment to submitting to the outcome of God's providence and allowing him to reveal his choice in choosing an apostle. Now, there are a lot of things that we could go into to discern about how an apostle must be chosen by, directly uh, by God. But what I want us to understand here is there commitment to the preaching, application, governance, and work of the word. That's what they were engaged here. As they were anticipating the promise of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them to go forth into this world and to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. It demonstrates the importance of being actively engaged in God's mission while waiting for his promises to be fulfilled. Not using it as an excuse not to do anything. A man wrote a book back in the 1980s, a very true book, a very good book, how that we were entertaining ourselves to death. 
Not only are we entertaining ourselves to death, but today we are excusing ourselves to death. We're committing spiritual suicide by excuses. But they didn't. They didn't use that waiting. Jesus saying, wait until the promise of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled. And they're like, cool. If we can delay this Holy Spirit thing longer, we can sit around and do nothing. No. They believed that Jesus' promise was true. And so they were preparing They were in preparation. Let me ask you a question. Are we the church in preparation, expectation, anticipation for the Lord to pour out his spirit upon the church to make us witnesses in this world? Well, I think if we were, we would be acting like the 120 here in the upper room. We would be unified, prayerful, and working. Why were they unified? Why were they spending time together in prayer? Why were they laboring in the ministry? Because they believed that the Holy Spirit was going to empower them to go and accomplish the mission that Jesus Christ had given them. See, we need to be characterized by those things again. Diligence, faithfulness, humility, and a deep sense of responsibility toward God and his people because we as Christians, we're called to serve. We are called to serve the church with our time, with our talents, and with our resources, recognizing that our work is ultimately for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. Our biblical passage that emphasizes the importance of a strong work ethic in serving Christ and his church is found in Colossians three twenty three through 24, which states, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, because it is the Lord you are serving. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, we are told, This isn't just the message. This is the message that the apostles then proclaimed to the church universal. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But yet, here we are In a dire situation here in the United States and throughout Western civilization, here we are. This is the place that the Lord has placed us. The Lord has brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this. But yet, we're not united, we're not praying, and we're not working. 
because we have became just as skeptical as the most skeptical atheist today. We do not believe that the promise of the Holy Spirit is a reality for us. We do not believe that the power of the Holy Spirit fallen upon his church is true for today. We do not believe in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Because if we believed it was possible, if we believed that it was true, we would be united together, we would be in prayer together, and we would be working in the ministry through the word in anticipation and excitement that the Lord was going to do something magnificent and powerful in his plan of redemption. What it boils down to this is that they believed Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world. And we no longer believe that today. And what we need to do is to embrace these promises that are found in the word once again and start living lives to the glory of God, following the example of the early church in unity, prayer, and work, anticipating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be effective witnesses equips us with spiritual gifts, and enables us to bear fruit that glorifies God. So let us eagerly await and expect the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and in the life of the church. And with hearts united, prayers lifted, and hands diligently working, we can impact our Jerusalem for Jesus Christ, bringing hope and salvation found in him to a world desperately in need of the good news.